Hi, I'm Steve Cousins. And I'm Daniel Grant. And you're listening to CinePod. The Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to The Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, it's time for another episode of The Cinematography Podcast. I know that because apparently people who are listening to that are, that's what they're listening to. So. That's right. That's why they're here. They're here yeah. because they were like, oh, look, another episode. Oh, but, boy. You know, we, we, we've already had a couple episodes come out this week. I think two already because, you know, the Sundance Film Festival is going on and we're starting to, you know, uh, get them out there. Yeah. And is Sundance over now? Uh, it is officially over. Yes. Oh, long live Sundance. I mean, it's just a bummer that it's all virtual, so it doesn't feel like there's a big hoopla around it. I got to say, for press folks like us, though, it was way easier to see the movies that were sometimes really hard to get into. No doubt. That was pretty awesome. So, Ilya, who is on the show today? Uh, we've got Daniel Grant and Steve Cousins. I think this is an interesting story because we mentioned uh, they, they both are cinematographers on the amazing HBO Max series Station Eleven, which mm. if, if you have access to HBO Max, definitely check it out. Gorgeous, brilliant, poignant It'll give you lots of feels, and it's like it's a post-apocalyptic story like no other, in my opinion. Really, really good. And uh, let's just say 4,000% more Shakespeare than you're ever going to get on The Walking Dead. Okay. If you are, if you have a need for more Shakespeare in your life, uh, then it sounds like you can get your fill. But this was my short end, of, you know, like a month or so ago. That's and right. I then got an Instagram message from Daniel Grant. Oh, saying like, thank you so much for talking about us. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, great show. So then I mentioned this to our intrepid producer, Alana Cody, and she said, will they do the show? And I was like, let me ask. And uh, that's how it happened. It happened that quickly. So if you're hearing the sound of my voice and you have a project you think is uh, worth us covering, please feel free to reach out. We're, we're pretty easy to find. We always talk about how to reach us, but, you know, you can certainly find me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and all, all those places that are uh, easy and unthreatening to reach out to a stranger on feel free. Yeah. And unless you're, unless you're like, just like the scum of the earth, there's it. But if you have an, an opinion about, you know, the visuals of the movie of a movie of a something, if you've got opinions about, you know, how something looks and can speak about it, we want you on the show. We want to talk about it. And, and don't scum of the earth shame there, Ilya. We'd like to have scum of the earth on here, too. <laughs> All right. That's true. If the scum of the yeah. earth can actually talk uh, eloquently yeah, about, yeah. about the, the cinematic crafts and the art of visuals, uh, visual storytelling. Absolutely. We'll take you on. Welcome, scum of the earth. Come on, scum. So uh, <laughs> speaking of scum of the earth, we have a, uh, a close focus that I, I think is near and dear to my heart. And it is... I love what you did right there. That's a great transition. I'm Mr. Segway today, man. It's about Joe Rogan, a podcaster, comedian, guy who used to make people eat cockroaches on network television. Oh, Joe Rogan. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a uh, yeah. he's awesome. Former host of the Man Show, Joe Rogan. Uh, I, Former I met, re replacement host of the of the Man Show, I should say. I, I met Joe Rogan in those Fear Factor days because uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I used to supply all the equipment to Fear Factor. Oh yeah. What were your opinions of Joe Rogan when you met him? 
it was a party. It was dark. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of words said. It was like, hey, how's it going? Oh, yeah, nice to meet you. That was pretty much the end of it. So. I mean, <laughs> I, this is not really a, a judgment on, on him as a person. But this week, it's been a huge kerfuffle uh, because Neil Young, who is, you know, a legendary musician, but maybe not the most contemporary voice in music, sure. uh, left Spotify because Joe Rogan is being paid tens of millions of dollars by Spotify. I think his deal is in the neighborhood of $100 million with Spotify. And he's bringing on these marginal, anti-vax, science-denying kind of people. And so Neil Young leaves Spotify, like pulls his whole catalog off of Spotify. Because Joni, of Joe Rogan. Because of Joe Rogan. And this okay. is after like many doctors have come out and asked Joe Rogan to stop doing what he's doing. And to his, uh, I'm going to call it credit, Joe Rogan often likes to say, I'm just a comedian. I'm a dumbass. Don't listen to me. But I also feel like when you have tens of millions of listeners at a certain point, if we had tens of millions of listeners... I don't know. I just, I might uh, triple check my facts before I said them out loud. (laughs) You know, I might be a little bit more sure of it. It's okay to have a podcast and say whatever you want. There are people like Mark Maron or whatever who, you know, but Mark Maron isn't bringing on scientists and saying, don't get vaccinated. When Mark Maron, I don't know if Mark Maron had COVID, but like Mark Maron is, wouldn't do what Joe Rogan did, which is after he got COVID, talked about how he took horse dewormer and all the crap that he did publicly. Like maybe he could have thought through it. And even if that was his course of treatment, he could have been a little bit more nuanced in the way he presented it. That notwithstanding, Spotify then proceeds to lose and it bounced right back. But in a day, they lost $4 billion worth of value on the stock market. Which really? isn't to, it's not to say that they lost $4 Whoa. billion, but they were valued at $4 billion less than they were. And I kind of went on a Twitter rant about this because Spotify and honestly, Apple Music, all of these, uh, Pandora, if you look them up, ironically, the one that pays the best to the artist is Napster. And they are paying uh, artists really badly for their music. And the argument that always comes back is, well, you make your money touring. And it's like, well, you know, it depends on who you are if you can make money touring. And so this kind of feeds into a giant rant that I've had for a long time, which is that the, the streaming platforms, as awesome as they are, and we all use them, we all use Netflix and Amazon Prime. I'm always talking about Shutter. I've never used Spotify. I, I listen to Apple Music. I get my podcasts not from Spotify. I get them from, you know, uh, I use a thing called Downcast. I'm sure they're way better. There's a ton of these. But the main conduits are these streaming services, and Spotify is one of them. And the fact that Spotify could lose $4 billion in value, and we're all like, eh, me who cares they'll be fine right that means they're a little bit overvalued maybe just a smidge but a smidge but also it means don't don't you think it means they could actually pay the artists who form the body of what spotify is that the musical artists better. are the torso of the body of That's spotify right. and yeah. could they could they not find it in their hearts to pay artists to share a little bit with it. And this again dovetails into a bigger overarching rant that I've had for a long time, which is whether you're talking about YouTube or you're talking about Netflix or you're talking about all these things. There was the rise, maybe starting about 10 years ago, of the buzzword content. What we're making is we're not making movies, we're not telling stories, we're making content. And it's because the important thing is this bucket that YouTube has made. That gets filled with, you know, some crap, whatever, whatever crap you're going to fill it with, you know, whatever crap you're going to put on Amazon Prime, whatever crap you're going to cram it in into Netflix. 
all of these are technology companies. They are not entertainment companies, even though many of them have bought entertainment companies. Apple is a technology company. Spotify, Netflix, Amazon Prime, all technology companies. That is where they're coming from. And so their focus, therefore, is on the technology part of it. It's the way we're serving it up, the platform. And in my Twitter rant, I actually even said this, but it's like, it's as if AMC theaters thought the reason we went to their places was about the carpet and the carpet was where they spent all their money or the comfy seats. It's like, no, no, no. We're there to see a movie. You're there to make a thing for us to see a movie in Netflix, Prime, all that stuff. They're there to give us a way to watch movies. Spotify is a content provider, but really it's a music service. It's a way for you to listen to music all the time. And I think that we've had this weird runaway from the artist side of things. It's fascinating. If you're listening to our podcast, you're probably listening to it on one of these services. So like, Oh, and by the way, our podcast is available for one of these services. Should they would like to back up that dump truck full of money that so yeah. that we can <laughs> thousand percent Spotify, please bring us 10 million, a hundred million dollars. Yeah. We'll do, but, it. we'll do it for $90 million. <laughs> yeah. But actually, we'll do it for, for much, much less than that, too. Oh, so. don't don't undersell yourself. Ilya. No, no. Way, way, way less. 90, 90 million. No, not not required. I do. <laughs> you and I are doing it for the love of the game right now. The well, love that's of true. It. That's fair. Yeah. I guess the like the Rogan thing just kind of brings to the fore to me, though, because they're paying Ro- Joe Rogan so much. And obviously they're paying Joe Rogan so that he's he brings popular. more he listeners brings to Spotify, listeners yeah. who will, in addition to listening to Joe Rogan, they'll listen to music, right? They'll listen to, you know, Spotify makes original podcasts, obviously, but the majority of what's on there are these music catalogs, these vast music catalogs. And it seems like uh, I'm describing the dark ages when I re- <laughs> remember the time when in order to listen to an album, I would have to like leave my house and get in a car and drive to a music store and maybe they didn't have the album I wanted and maybe I'd have to order it or go to another music store and I would get it on CD or even audio cassette and then I would play it in my car and if I was playing that I couldn't just play everything else in the universe because right now I personally use Apple Music and I can listen to anything ever recorded you know by by humans Uh, yeah well but you know here's the thing too though if your internet goes out your record will still work at home. And in fact, if you crank up your phonograph a few times, you might not even need electricity. It'll just play. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's, you know, like these services are amazing, but I I guess I just, I find it frustrating. And, you know, it's maybe in the same, maybe this is an argument of saying like, why do basketball players make tens of millions of dollars and teachers make, you know, $60,000 a year? Maybe this is that kind of argument. And, you know, because the technologists, are the ones who've created value for themselves. And so they get, you know, they get the riches. Steven Spielberg didn't go out there and create Netflix. Somebody else did. I don't know who. And that person gets to rake in the dollars. And as you pointed out not long ago, is like the second highest valued entertainment company in the world behind only Disney, which is nuts. There isn't like a Netflix theme park, but you know, um, (laughs) well, yeah, So you think about the money that these people are bringing in, but what is Netflix? Netflix is a bunch of movies and TV shows. It's built on the creative output of a lot of the kinds of people we talk to, a lot of the very actual people that we talk to on this show. I think that Reed Hastings gets all the credit for for, for Netflix. And uh, there's actually a really great podcast, which you can listen to on Spotify, called Business Wars. And Business Wars does one which is all about Netflix versus Blockbuster. And they they tell the whole story of Reed Hastings. It's totally totally worth listening to. It's a lot of fun. 
it's all very interesting and not to again not to beat up the joe rogan story that much more but on a podcast that recently returned after uh on almost year absence the gist host mike pesca pointed out that neil young has dispensed with you know questionable medical information he has a whole album called the monsanto years that's railing against gmos and blaming autism in children uh, on pesticides so it's like i'm not here to say i don't want to court controversy and say these things are right or they're wrong i'm saying they're marginal thoughts they're things that aren't that don't have all the science to back them up and so it kind of makes neil young's proclamation a little flat and also i kind of go like okay uh anyone who's ever paid for cable TV in their life has paid for any number of channels that they either flat out disagreed with or at the very least just didn't watch, just didn't care about. I will never watch sports and I currently have cable and I'm paying for ESPN that I will never, ever, ever, ever watch ever, ever. Yeah, I I don't know if I was the only one, but but I used to be like morally offended by QVC and the Home Shopping Network. Agreed. And and when I spoke to someone who actually worked for my cable company once, they told me that those were two of the most popular channels that they had, like by number of viewers. And I just like it blew me away. I I didn't think that that many people loved watching QVC. What's really funny is that QVC and Home Shopping Network now are being completely usurped by like, you know, people with a phone. People are coming up with their own influencer shopping and they're doing essentially low rent QVC out of like, you know, shops in their bedrooms and things like that. It's really I had not bizarre. heard about that. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a whole thing. I don't think it's really catching on because it, Lord knows I wasn't interested in it when it was professional. I'm definitely not interested in it now that it's amateur. Well, I think that that has gone on long enough. Let's go ahead and go to our interview now with uh, Daniel Grant and Steve Cousins. Let's do it. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here today with two DPs of the amazing new show on HBO Max, Station Eleven, Daniel Grant and Steve Cousins. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Good to be here. And I just want to say that this whole interview happened because Ilya and I were talking about the show and Daniel reached out to me on Instagram and said, thanks for mentioning the show. And I was like, want to come on the show? So uh, word of warning to any cinematographers listening, if you reach out, uh, we, we might ask you on the show. So congratulations on wrapping up an amazing season. And ordinarily, we do kind of a career retrospective and talk about your education and stuff. And some of that might come up. But I'm mostly interested because, you know, we've had DPs like Checo Varese on, for instance, who shot The Strain. We've had DPs who shoot a lot of television on, but we haven't really had at the same time two cinematographers who kind of both shot the same show. So let's start with you, Daniel, and just kind of tell me about what brought you to the show and what was presented to you? Like what drew you into the show? Well, I, I was actually reading the book. Like I was like halfway through the book. Station Lemon is based on a book by Emily St. John Mandel. It's a beautiful, really beautiful book. A friend of mine who both Steve and I know, Patricia Rosema reached out to me because she's friends with some of the creators. And just said, Hey, there's a, a show in town that this thing called Station 11, would you be interested in if I like mention your name to them, because they're looking for DPs. And Patricia and I had worked together on a f- couple of projects, a film a few years ago called Insta Forest. And uh, when I, I got that message, I was like literally reading the book, like on my couch. <laughs> so it was just like, like coincidentally reading it or yes. like you knew that. No, no, I'm coincidentally reading it. So I was just kind of blown away that it was being made. And uh, so of course, like I was, yeah, it was thrilled. At first, it was the prospect of it was seemed kind of a bit scary because I've never done 
a series. And I also, at the time, I had like a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And I was kind of like, you know, it's going to be not possible <laughs> to do this. Like I just, I, and up until that point, I've been kind of keep my commitments a bit lighter. And, but, you know, we were just kind of so thrilled by the idea that we just thought, okay, we have to explore it. And I got sent the scripts and had a conversation with um, one of the makers of the show. And, and also, I think Steve and I both knew that we were kind of, we, they were they were always looking for for two DPs uh, to alternate in the show because it's just a you know it's a big complicated show so it just made a lot of sense to have to kind of share that work and I had known Steve for a while like we hadn't worked that much together directly but I did a little bit of second unit for him and I kind of knew of his work for a long time and so we both kind of were aware that we were up for the show and I think we both kind of thought like. It would be so great, you know, because we have, I think, a similar sensibility. And, and I've just always had a lot of admiration and respect for Steve's work. So I just thought, what a great, you know, great way to kind of be introduced to that. Also working with somebody that I knew I could, you know, could hang on and help me transition into that, which Steve was really, you know, really great about. So that was kind of how I got involved in the project. How about you, Steve? Similarly, I think Jeremy Pedesla, one of the uh, the directors, reached out to me and said it was coming to town and would I be interested. And Daniel and I, we share the same agent. So I think, you know, we, we kind of both got wind of it at the same time. And, and so I was a bit nervous because I had never done a alternating DP gig. And I just didn't know how that was going to be and whether, like, how would it work and could it work? And then uh, when I found out that Daniel was going to be the other DP, I was actually really relieved because likewise, I really, am, <laughs> I really admired his work. And I, I know that we have a similar sensibility and we come at our work, uh, you know, from a similar place. And also when I saw the first two episodes, one and three, that Christian Spranger had shot, I knew that I was going to be good that they were already speaking a language that I was comfortable with and I didn't have to think too much about it. I was like, okay, I can do this. And I don't, I didn't have to change my aesthetic. I just rolled right into it. And I think Daniel probably felt the same way. So it was kind of an easy transition to pick up what Christian and Hero done and pull it into what, what we had to shoot here in Canada. That's interesting. So you were picking up from what another DP had done. And this is something I'm always curious about in the TV world. So somebody else had kind of set something of a template. They'd created the visual language of the show. What is it like kind of picking that up and carrying that mantle forward? And uh, where do you get your creative rocks off in the process? Like, where are you able to find little places for you to find a new way to do it or express the the world the way that you see it? For me, I... You know, the, the first episode one and three, for me, I was struck by the pacing of those two episodes and that they would let shots sit and they would kind of let the show come at you. You know, it wasn't quickly edited. And to me, it was it was a language that, you know, that I appreciate and I, I could adopt it so easily because it's the way that I approach my work, too. So I didn't even I didn't have to think, oh, geez, should I frame it this way? Should, should I frame it this way? It was really just nicely framed a lot of a lot of uh center center punched framing and really just i would say more graphic framing and i didn't have to think too much about it really yeah and one of um this daniel here one of the things that was kind of interesting was that episodes one and three they shot pre-covid those were shot in chicago and they finished i think they shot in like january 2020 so this was like like apparently like when they were wrapping 
they were starting to get these like alerts on their phone about COVID. Yeah. I, I, I had heard about that. Like I had read that they started shooting the show before COVID because like the whole show feels like such a commentary on what on it, it. Like if anything was making it hard for me to sit down and watch the show, it's like I'm still living in that world. <laughs> Too real. Uh, don't know if I'm ready to watch this. And so I was actually surprised to find out. I mean, my, my wife uh, had actually read the book. So, you know, like she, she already knew a, a lot of it beforehand. But like it almost seemed like it was a reaction to to the pandemic in a way. Mm-hmm. It was interesting working on the show during that time because it did feel that way. I think it informed a lot of what we did. For those who haven't seen it, the show takes place in what we were calling year zero and year 20 because it jumps forward 20 years. Yeah, it starts from the beginning of a pandemic and it's uh, like the fastest moving pandemic. Like, you know, you first find out about it and then hours later, it's everywhere. That's right. So that year 20, the language of year 20 had really been established yet. I know they had thought a lot about it. One of the things that First things that Steve and I did was we had a, a great conversation with Christian Springer, who shot those episodes with director Kira Murai. And they had lots of different ideas about what Year 20 might have been if they had been able to continue with the series. He was saying like, oh, they thought about maybe Year 20 is all shot 16 or maybe it's all handheld or they had all these kind of different ideas, but they just never had a chance to develop them. So that was kind of an open question and something that we were able to develop as the show went on because all that material needed basically um, a lot of that takes place in, you know, spring, summer, you know, everything is lush, you know, nature is everywhere because that 20 years later. So in this, in this pandemic, so you jump around, but basically 99% of the world's population dies. The thing about the show is that it's actually about everything that happens before and after the pandemic, the pandemic itself isn't, really depicted that closely. Like you hardly Thank see the Thank God. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, so I think that's one of people's like uh, the hesitation to watch the show because they think that's what they're going to be watching. But, but actually what you see, what the, sh- what the story depicts is everything before and after. And it's a very small part of like the first couple episodes, like mm-hmm. the whole kind of pandemic thing. This is Steve. I just wanted to go back because um, I'm thinking about those first two episodes and what it was that uh, was inspiring and that I felt connected to. And that was that particularly the lighting that Krishna was doing, I would say was really naturalistic and organic yes. and it wasn't a slick show. And I really gravitated to that. I was like, okay, this is, this is good. This is, I can tell he's lighting the way that I like to light with practicals and as much natural light and, you know, a bit, bit of bounce and stuff like that. And I think that is true for what Daniel does too. And I think that that is part of the look of the show is that it has a very natural, organic kind of look to it. I love the look. I love I love kind of the naturalism that you guys got. And Daniel, when you said indie features, like, yeah, it, it, it feels a little bit like a, like a really well-developed, really interesting novelistic feature that goes on, you know, for 10 episodes. So when you're talking about how, you know, for year 20, there were discussions about how to represent that. What did y'all land at? How did you shoot uh, year 20 versus year zero? Uh, this is Steve. Patrick Somerville, he was really adamant about the year 20 stuff feeling a little bit more saturated and that nature was not oppressive and it wasn't to be burned out and, you know, the landscape was not smoldering, that it was, you know, nature was present and to be embraced and engaged with. And I I really liked that from the beginning. I liked that he was kind of spinning the the post-apocalyptic look on its head a little bit and not doing the the typical, you know? 
So that was really a driving fundamental of the look was just that it wanted to feel positive. We were not doing the road as much as I love the road. We were not doing that. It was, you know, a more positive uh, spin on it. That's really cool. And the big question that I have for both of you, how do you hand off the baton when you're doing a series like this? If you're doing uh, an episode that has scenes in year zero and year 20, does the same director come in and do you do those all together? Do you block shoot the zero stuff and the year 20 stuff? Or if you're doing all the year zero stuff first in the series and then shooting the year 20 stuff later, is the same director kind of overseeing that part of that episode? And when one of you has to continue the story from somebody else, how, how do you make sure that it feels at once uh, one of a piece and at the same time, you, you, you know, you're both creative professionals. So you're there to kind of author an image that's unique to yourself. How do you handle kind of that, that handoff? Uh, this is Steve. Well, the show was kind of like one big road show. You know, we, we were in so many different locations all the time with a large crew. We were always on the move. And for me, it was always about, I guess, fusing the, the challenges of the logistics with the creative, because every time we were about to go somewhere, there was so much to do. And so many times we needed to, to visit that set, but we didn't always have enough time. Well, I'm, I'm just curious though, like what's the communication? Like, Hey, you know, here's how we shot this end scene in the, in episode six or whatever. I'm, I'm making it up in episode seven. We need to pick that up. And how do we make sure that everything about it again, feels like it's one of a piece, but also it's two different people doing it. So it's going to come out two different ways. Yeah, I think we, you know, Daniel and I, we shared a lot of information and we did shoot in a, a bunch of similar locations. And so, you know, we were always just kind of talking and, you know, sharing ideas and expressing to each other what was working in a location or what didn't work. And I know one time I was shooting a location and there were some windows up top that, that we hadn't blacked out that I really wish I could have blacked out. And so when we left, I said to the grips, okay, I know Daniel's coming in here tomorrow. Like, let's black those windows out, you know? So I think, you know, we were able to kind of hand the baton off by really just respecting that the other person was going to have to go in there and, and work in the same space and how could we help them? And, you know, Daniel and I would have calls, you know, I'd be going to going home at 5 a.m. and he'd be heading out on the road at 5 a.m. <laughs> and we'd have these groggy conversations about, oh man, <laughs> you know, how, how did it go? And we'd be like, oh God, I can't believe that hill, you know, and, you know, we'd try to, <laughs> and I think we're just communicating well with each other and respecting each other's approach and sharing intel, you know, as much as we could. And I think from there, we had our own unique ways of shooting it, but really the, the building blocks were always kind of set up for us to help each other. Do you have anything to uh, add, add to that, Daniel? Yeah, like logistically, it was kind of broken down is that it was all being be broken down into these blocks. And then basically, you know, Steve and I sh would share the same crew but there would sort of be like a director DP AD team that would stick together. And, you know, one block might be like, usually, you know, one team would shoot a block and then we'd, we'd switch back and forth to give the other time team time to prep. But sometimes we would have certain locations where we would both have to shoot in the same day. So we'd overlap a little bit. There was, you know, stuff like that. But generally the, because the show is so complicated and it required many of the episodes required like, different seasons or like the same location at different, you know, dressed for different years and stuff like yeah. that. The schedule was really weird. Like it wasn't like we shot this episode and we shoot the next one and the next one. It's like, it was all kind of mixed up in these blocks. That was just this continuous 
logistics puzzle that the ads were constantly kind of refining oh, man. changing as new locations came in because that sounds know, so difficult to do that sounds so hard <laughs> to get to get it straight yeah and you know it was when we first started like the first stuff we shot was because that frank's apartment set had been built like they had just one scene in there in in the in episode one uh i think it's that's all it was I mean, I think that was all this useful. Yeah, it's like right at the end of, of the first episode, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then, so basically, that set was rebuilt in Toronto. So that was a known thing. So that didn't require a ton of prep. But then all, like, all the locations had to be basically found after that. It was just this very fluid process where, like, new locations would come in. Like, for instance, uh, Steve was busy shooting something and we had to go, I think it was the... Um, part of the airport set. I had time because I was pre in prep. So I went and scouted that with some people. And then I would just send him some notes. And he, had, I think Steve, you'd already been there at that point, but it was just like kind of constantly trying to feed each other information where it's appropriate. And then as we we're shooting too, watching each other's dailies, we would also have this system where like the DIT would take a still of every shot. So sometimes it was just a matter of, you know, checking and just looking at the stills and see, oh, that's what they did with that. You know, this was lit or that was lit. And because of the way the episodes broke down, we sort of had our own worlds that we were responsible for. But then there would be this overlap, like especially at the airport, that was a place where we both had a lot of work we had to do. But otherwise, it was a lot of the episodes kind of went on these journeys where, you know, they were kind of self-contained. So it was mostly where we had that overlap that we really needed to communicate. And, uh, you know, like at the airport, it was important for Jeremy Pedeswa for the the lone, the Gitchagumi plane that was sitting out on the tarmac, he wanted to have light out there. And it became a thing where I didn't really want to have light out there. I wanted the light to be motivated from the airport pushing out onto the tarmac. But eventually I put lights out, uh, out on there. And, I, and at one point we thought about having whacker lights, like remote lights that have their own little motor connected to them out there as if they had put them up to protect themselves and have kind of light out there. So choices that were being made in my episode because of what uh, Jeremy was envisioning kind of spilled over into Daniel's because all of, all of a sudden Daniel was going to have to use the, uh, you know, similar lights to what I ended up using out on the tarmac. Well, we did have a lot of conversations about, yeah, the airport, because that's a, that was a functioning airport. So like the runway that we shot on is, was actually technically a runway that was like, it, it was an emergency runway. There was still possibility that planes could land there. So oh it was like, it was really crazy. <laughs> like thankfully it was during scary. COVID and <laughs> there weren't that many planes that had to land, but that was a just uh, but ongoing. Did, I mean, did, did planes have to emergency land there while you were in? No, 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 never okay. happened. No, but because it was always a sensitive spot, every time we went out on there, we had to submit every piece of equipment that was going to be used out in there. Like a month in advance and there was no at the last minute if all of a sudden you needed a, a little scissor lift it was like forget it you know it was really tightly controlled by oh, the wow. airport so logistically it was uh, just very challenging daniel when when you had first reached out to me on on instagram i think episode was it seven the one that unfolds in almost entirely in one apartment was about to drop and i feel like with a show that has kind of the expansive palette that this has you know going across decades and there's so much stuff that's like exteriors and there's a whole kind of intrigue story happening at year 20 and that's a story that's mostly at, at year zero can you talk about I, I, I hesitate to call it a bottle episode but it's an episode that takes place almost entirely in, in one apartment 
talk about like how you approached that and made that kind of feel like again one of a piece of this show. Well, that was actually that was the first thing we shot because as I was saying before, like that that set was kind of they were able to start building that right away because it had already been designed and built once before. Mm. And it was just like an incredible set to shoot on. And Ruth M and the production designer, like I mean, that's really, I think that's the best, that's like the most amazing set I've ever worked on. It was just like, oh, wow. You, it was like you couldn't make a bad frame in there. Nice. So the interesting thing about that episode was that there is this uh, sort of sense of dread building up to a climax and you're never quite, you're not sure what happens, but you're kind of waiting for something to happen. Mm, so there's this yep. really interesting kind of tonal knife edge that that rides the whole time because it's kind of, it gets, it's. You know, it's it's also like a very funny episode. There's humor and it's very poignant, but then there's also this like sense of dread. So it was just such an interesting thing to be able to start with. And uh, so we kind of wanted to play with this idea that you were viewing something that could not be changed. And so there's a, in the climax, there's like one of the few sort of moments of violence in the series. There's very little kind of like action or violence in the series. And we really wanted to shoot it almost like the opposite of how you would shoot like an action scene. Like the camera is very impassive, sees it really from a distance and is and not moving. Like the cameras rarely moves, even like within individual frames, people's close-ups. We, often we would ask the operators to try to make as few adjustments as possible so that the characters could kind of move within the frame, but we would never follow them. And to try to create this sense that like, the camera kind of views the, uh, the the events that happen as sort of almost like this inevitable thing that you're moving towards, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. And it's interesting because I remember the moment of violence you're talking about. And it sort of had that feeling that, you know, like when you witness a thing in real life and you're powerless to do anything about it, be it, you know, if you see a car accident or someone freaking out on the street you're just like way back and uh and i think that that was that sounds like that's what you were going for like i hadn't really thought about it on on that level but it's uh it's a really interesting way to approach that because you know yeah we are used to post-apocalyptic shows you know like steve you mentioned the road i think of like the walking dead there are so many great post-apocalyptic things but yeah this isn't an especially violent show and it isn't you know it isn't the stand we aren't leading up to a big explosive murder-based climax like i'm used to seeing in anything that happens in the apocalypse it's way more thoughtful and uh sincere and in a great way it was very unexpected yeah we um we were thinking about in that moment that we're talking about we were thinking about that that michael haneke film cachet i don't know if you've seen that long time ago yeah i have seen it yeah there's a moment in that of like really jarring unexpected violence that happens and the way that the camera views it is it's it just in this really impassive way that almost makes it more disturbing because you're looking instead of trying to like excite the audience with what's happening you're almost like hypnotizing them mm. by like kind of sitting back and showing it in this banal kind of way and to me i always find that really interesting in cinema where that choice is made more to rather than trying to like really excite the viewer it's more yeah, like casting a spell. Uh, that's cool. And I think that, that might be a, a pretty good place to leave it before we go. I want to encourage anyone listening to us again to check out Station Eleven. It's on HBO Max. But uh, thank you both for coming on. Before we go, uh, where can people find you online, see your work, check out what you're up to? I, you can see some of my work at stevecousins.com. And that's C-O-S-E-N-S, correct? Yeah. And uh, Daniel? 
Yeah, I have a poorly maintained website. <laughs> uh, if just, every every DP we have on here is like, I haven't touched my website in three years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is danielgrantdp.com. And, and obviously you're on Instagram. That's where you found me. Yep, so. that's right. I think it's the same on Instagram. Cool. Well, congratulations to you both for uh, just an amazing series. I hope that there's, if not a second season of it, I just look forward to seeing what both of you do in the future. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. All right. So that was Daniel Grant and Steve Cousins. Thanks so much for being on the show. Great work, guys. I can't wait to see whatever you do next. So, uh, Ilya, I hear it is time for us to pay some bills. We'll make it short. Assemble.tv. Our friends at Assemble.tv give all of our listeners a promo code to get their service free for a month. And it's totally worth checking out, especially if you ever have to organize uh, any sort of production. So use the promo code CINEPOD, C-I-N-E-P-O-D, CINEPOD, and you'll get a month of their service for free, which is great because if you've got a job that lasts less than a month, you get to do the whole job for free on their service, which is great. But if you're if you're doing a job that's longer than a month, it, it would come in very handy. You can go to our YouTube channel and see kind of a walkthrough of the whole system. And for the calendar alone, it is worth it. The calendar is, is one of the most mind-blowing things. I can't believe I've never seen a calendar like that before. It, it's definitely something I will use the next time I have a production, large or small. Now, short ends. So, hey, Ben, it's short end time. What's your obsession this week? Well, I know I uh, I have probably uh, more than once talked about my love of Adobe Premiere Pro, which I left uh, Final Cut Pro in 2011, I want to say, whenever it was that Final Cut Pro X dropped. And uh, I, I was actually working on a project for our good friend, Kay's Alatrachi, and we, we had shot a few weeks before it was a, uh, the first thing he ever directed. And we were sort of waiting for the new Final Cut Pro because we knew it was coming out. And the day it came out, it was like, nope, this isn't a viable tool for editing a real thing. And we and abandoned it. And I already had Premiere Pro on my system because like a lot of people, I had the creative suite so that I could have Photoshop and After Effects, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I've been using it for a long time, but I've had a question and not just Premiere Pro. I would have asked this question of Avid of Final Cut Pro, of DaVinci Resolve. And that is, in the title tool, why don't you have a spell check? <laughs> Seems obvious, right? Uh, but then that would get take away all of the really, really fun misspellings that we see in videos all the yeah. time. <laughs> I mean, a lot of times we're just, we're, we're spelling people's names and, you know, names are kind of spell check proof. But not always. You know, there's a lot of like standard stuff. And your computer... Mac or PC has a dictionary built in that like your spell checker for whatever programs you use is accessing that dictionary. So it always seemed kind of academic that, you know, we're writing words in on the screen. There should be a way to check the spelling. Well, Premiere Pro has updated and now there is a spell check. There's also a find and replace function like all the basic word processor 1.0 things that should have been in all of these title tools since the beginning of nonlinear editing. Now they're all there and you can also teach it words. So like, you know, let's say you have a, a person's very particular name spelling, but it's going to come up a lot in your project. You know, you can tell it, just learn that. And, uh, you know, if you if you got somebody's name wrong and you have a Chiron that comes up 20 times in your project, you can find and replace all instances of it. I know this is not the sexiest thing I've ever talked about. It actually seems like total common sense that a computer program 
in which you type words would look at the spelling of those words. But to my knowledge, and dear listeners, please correct me if I'm wrong, none, zero of the nonlinear editing systems that have been on the market for, I don't know how long has nonlinear editing been around, 40 years, 35 years, uh, none of them have ever had a spell checker in the title tool. And now Premiere Pro has it. So there you go. That's my rant. All right. You're full of rants today. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a one ranty motherfucker you're, today. You're a I'm ranting saying. machine. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> what, Ilya, is your short end today? Oh, wow. Well, uh, you know, it actually throws back to HBO Max. Uh, you know, we're worth just throwing all kinds of love at, at HBO Max. Coming soon is a documentary I got to see the premiere of at Sundance. We did not speak to the the filmmaker uh, or the filmmakers behind it, but uh, it's Navali. Are, are you familiar with the uh, Navali? Oh, it's the, no. You know, he is the competitor. I don't know how you actually have a real competitor, but you have a, a uh, in, in Russia, but it is Putin's probably number one competitor. And he oh, was poisoned yeah, I, on I, an, I do know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was poisoned uh, and, the, and he fell ill on an airplane, which then made an emergency landing in Siberia. And basically this documentary about Navalny follows the entire story. And it's an incredible story. And everyone in, you know, everyone with access to HBO, most of the world is going to get to see this really soon. And I was unaware that like a sort of private organization had gotten involved with them and they bought KGB or now called the FSB phone records from some people off the dark web and then use that to track down the kill squad that poisoned Navali. What? uh, Yes, exactly. And, And then... There is a phone call that takes place where they basically get one of the poisoners, one of the murderers, to confess, the, the, you know, the whole thing. And then, of course, this gets played. You know, this is going back to some number of months ago now. And Navalny's now in, in, in jail uh, or is now held in prison uh, as like, you know, public enemy number one. But um, <laughs> in Russia. And here's the thing. Right after you see the scene where, where uh, it's revealed that this guy poisoned him with the under direct orders from uh, from Putin they were like you know what this is really terrible we better like call him up and offer him amnesty because as soon as putin finds out about this he's going to be dead (laughs) and then sure enough they reveal in the course of the documentary that right after it comes out like two days later that guy is nowhere to be found you can't find him anymore so yes so you get to witness like all of the stuff that's like and an incredible detail and it's an amazing story and frankly i'm really impressed that uh, hbo and their parent company warner brothers had the balls to do this because you know other movies about dissidents like the dissident you know the dissident exactly uh have come out and that was too hot for most of the uh did that ever find a home like did that ever get released it did it came out via vod i don't know if you can find it on amazon or elsewhere now but it did get a release finally and it's really wonderful and people should seek out the dissonant. It is white knuckle, incredible story, a harrowing story, and also heartbreaking story. And I would say that this movie is, uh, is very much in the same vein and absolutely worth watching. Oof. Sounds, sounds tense, but yeah. And it's coming out on HBO max in the next month or so. Yes. Navalny, uh, HBO max. It's, um, it looks like it'll screen on CNN, North America and HBO max. Just says sometime to be determined in the spring of 2022. So not too long from that's, now. That's uh, before Vladimir Putin buys Warner Brothers and and shuts down <laughs> HBO Max. Yeah. N- Navalny, uh, I mean, really, I, I, I absolutely could see it. someone trying to, to bury it. I mean, 
if you look at Putin, he is possibly the most powerful person in the entire world. I mean, he is a, a dictator. He is essentially president for life of a, you know, the largest country by landmass and, and territories. And he's exerting his will all over the world, including amassing hundreds of thousands of troops in Belarus and mm. at the Ukrainian border right now. It's like it, it, it's uh, <laughs> maybe it's all distraction for this, you know, this documentary about to be released. <laughs> I, I don't it's know. Certainly we got us talking more than any documentary. Well, yeah, I'll definitely check that out. And I still haven't seen The Dissident, dis- yeah, so despite all the times you've told me it's how, how amazing it is and how interested I am in the story itself. So, Yeah, uh, yeah, Navalny, uh, definitely when it's out, check it out. It's absolutely worthwhile and uh, definitely should not, should not be missed. Amazing. So, Ilya, where can people find you on the uh, Internet if they were so inclined to reach out and say hello? They can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Uh, I'm there Monday through Friday. And uh, yeah, reach out, say hello. I've also been getting some uh, people connecting via LinkedIn. You're welcome to do that. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I hate the messenger, but uh, I, I do connect with people all the time there. So absolutely. LinkedIn, ben, where... very underrated service. <laughs> all right, Ben, where can people find you? Uh, as always, you can go to Facebook and find me at the group Needs a Werewolf. Uh, big, big, big fan of that. We're creating quite a community of people who are discussing how to improve entertainment by including werewolves in it. And, uh, it's all, it's all very positive and, uh, unlike anything else, uh, it completely apolitical. I really appreciate everyone on there has, has kept it pretty, not, not clean, but not. <laughs> it, how can it, you have a werewolf group, group and keep it clean? I don't think it's possible, but not acrimonious, not, not controversial <laughs> amongst ourselves. Uh, outside of that, please go to benrockonline.com. Uh, you can find all of my links to social media, etc. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. As you said, uh, Instagram, don't use Instagram as much, but you know what? We have uh, Instagram to thank for the two interviews we did today. So I'm very excited about Instagram. Uh, and that's about it. <laughs> Has anyone suggested Teen Wolf or Teen Wolf 2 in your Needs a Werewolf? Yes, they have. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> also, uh, there's plenty of werewolf movies where, you know, like, um, I, I, I really enjoyed the movie, but Werewolves Within hmm. could have used more werewolf, in my opinion. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. It's not a bad movie. It was, it's, it's really fun. But I like, you know, the, the word werewolf is in the title i i expected lots of werewolf in it they really hold hold that werewolf card till the very till the third act you don't really get to the werewolf but that's you know that is what it is so who do we need to thank this week let's thank case alatrachi let's thank him thanks case thanks case hey i saw a rough cut of 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 case's newest uh directorial work i can't can't really can't say much about it but congrats case awesome uh, let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, editing, because we had all these uh, internet delays and weird choppiness, I think that he might have uh, some extra work today. Sorry, sorry, Ben. Sorry about that, Ben. And uh, last but never least, uh, Alana Cody, our producer, who is uh, kicking all the ass, setting up so many interviews. We have some great ones coming up, and uh, I don't even know how she does it. It's, it's amazing some of the people she gets on here and uh, gets to talk to my dumbass. Uh, just, just you wait. We got all kinds of other stuff coming out, and before you know it we got a whole whole bunch of episodes i think february might be a record record month for releases for us shortest month most releases yeah we're, we're looking like it right now we'll see nice. yeah back do you remember back in the days back in the days when we used to do this and then it was like we'd talk about something and then three months would go by and it would finally get released yes i remember <laughs> those months only all too well that's because i was editing and not ben katz that's right 
That's right. Really glad we decided to make some changes. It really yeah. <laughs> improved the show. I'm sure our listeners uh, probably think so as well, too. Hey, Rock, you're fired from editing. Hey, here's a guy who's just going to edit, and he's not going to try and do like 19 other things, too. And <laughs> surprise, <laughs> we get some shows out. It's kind of amazing. Nice. Yeah, it is. All right. So, Ben, I think that's it. Let's uh, let's sign off and we'll see you back here next week or we'll hear you back here next week or something. Because, yeah, not too many visuals in this show unless you like going into a closet and listening to it. It's about the same visuals. So, man, keep going. Just keep going. (laughs) The the hole's getting deeper. All right. (laughs) Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.